Hey, everybody. It is Tuesday, June 27th. I'm Mosh Wanunu. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, our 24-hour journey to return from South Carolina to New York <laughs> is over. And I am back on camera for those of you who missed us on YouTube yesterday. Though I will say that being stuck in Charleston, South Carolina, not the worst place in the world to spend an extra day. I mean, you guys ate your way through the city, basically. Oh, I was saying to my wife, I was like, why do I feel so crappy? <laughs> and she's like, well, probably because, you know, you've had a fried chicken sandwich, a bunch of seafood. Uh, also, like they make, you know, there's all these bars, mixed drinks. Like I haven't drank, you know, I, I hardly drink anymore. So having like a drink with every meal and brunch. <laughs> Really took a toll on this 41-year-old body. I watch your Instagram stories, and I'm like, how are these two not a 1,000 pounds each? Honestly, if we spent any more days in Charleston, that would be the case. Jill, I uh, have to say, for anyone who's not familiar with it, uh, who's able to get there for a weekend, uh, incredible restaurants, incredibly nice people. It was a really wonderful uh, place to spend a weekend. Yes, and Alex was saying that she thinks it would be great for families too. So um, I think we'll put it on our list. Though it's interesting now, you know, that being, you know, approaching fatherhood here brings new perspective on everything. And we are walking down the streets. And I mean, some of these streets are literally 400 years old in Charleston. I was like, these are not stroller friendly <laughs> sidewalks, uh, which, you know, I'd never thought about that before. Yes, everything has new meaning uh, once you start to see it through a lens of a young dad. Though one additional thing before we get started here, on a serious note, uh, our flight delays, many people were writing in, Jill, about their experiences in the past couple of days. Flight cancellations, in particular Delta, related to weather and a whole number of factors, FAA issues, uh, the overall pilot shortage that hasn't gone away. Uh, and keep in mind, at the end of this week, and we'll do more on it on the podcast, uh, new regulations will go into effect related to 5G. And there's a whole bunch of planes, a whole bunch of airlines that have planes that are not equipped to deal with 5G, which means you could see some groundings. So just fair warning, everybody, if you plan to travel in the next couple of weeks, especially with July 4th coming up, uh, be there early, be ready. Uh, and to the extent that you can, carry on because you're going to need that agility. Okay, time for some headlines. What happened in Russia over the weekend? Well, on Monday, we heard from Vladimir Putin and the man who launched a rebellion against him explaining what they say happened. Here in the U.S., the cancer drug shortage is forcing doctors to make some unheard of choices on who gets medication and who doesn't. A new plan to bring high-speed internet to every American by the end of the decade the heat dome bringing triple-digit temperatures to Texas that's set to keep sitting there and expand north and east in the coming days. The FDA is creating some new guidance for scientists to study hallucinogens like LSD and their treatment for illnesses and conditions. The Japanese are under fire for their plan to release radioactive water from the Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean. And you've probably heard about Mercury being in retrograde. But this summer, apparently, seven planets will be in retrograde. What it means, according to astronomers and astrologers. We run the pendulum here. We're talking to the scientists and the people who interpret the zodiac here, Jill. Trying to give people the full picture. As I often say, Mosh, we've got range here at Mo News. Plus, on this day in history. Speaking of range, 25 years ago this summer... 
the Billboard charts of 1998, Jill. We're on fire. We'll do a little summer 98 music countdown. As you know, I peaked in high school, so, so this is right up my alley. All right, it is a he said, he said. Vladimir Putin and Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the weekend military rebellion, both spent their Mondays spinning the events from the weekend. Putin addressed the nation late Monday in a pre-recorded address. He condemned the mutiny and said that while the rebels turned around before they got to Moscow, he vowed that the rebellion would have been suppressed by his military anyway. Putin also thanked the, quote, unity of Russian society. That is despite the images of many Russians celebrating the Wagner Group mercenary soldiers as they drove through Russia on Friday and Saturday. The rebellion by the private armed group with tens of thousands of soldiers lasted less than 24 hours, but appeared to be the gravest threat to Putin's authority in two decades. Putin said the overwhelming majority of the Wagner company are patriots and gave the mercenaries the choice of either joining the Russian military or moving to Belarus with their leader, Prigozhin. Putin did not name Prigozhin in his televised address, but he did say organizers of the mutiny had tried to force the group's soldiers, quote, to shoot their own. Putin blamed Russia's enemies and said that they, quote, miscalculated in their 24-hour rebellion that left more than a dozen Russian airmen dead and ended with the Wagner mercenary group coming within 120 miles of Moscow before turning around. Meanwhile, Prigozhin released his first audio statement since the weekend mutiny on Monday. Remember, he did strike an agreement to leave Russia peacefully and live on in neighboring Belarus in exchange for ending his march on Moscow Saturday. In his address, he claimed that he was not specifically targeting Putin when he declared his troops would march on Moscow saying, quote, we didn't march to overthrow Russia's leadership. He said the aim of the march was to avoid destruction of Wagner and to hold to account Russian defense officials who he felt were mistreating his group. His main issue, essentially, it appears, was the Russian demand that members of his group report to the Russian military. Essentially, this was about keeping his autonomy and the independence of that vicious mercenary group. Yeah, Prigozhin in his statement, uh, and we'll go through each of these here, Jill, was trying to frame himself as an ethical white hat hacker here who marched on Moscow to show the regime's weakness, offering his services to improve the country. He was just there to help Russia out, uh, is effectively how he characterized it in his statement on Monday. That said, in pursuit of that, Jill, he took over Russian military command headquarters, uh, called out Putin, called out the war, uh, really embarrassed his former mentor, Vladimir Putin, uh, and, uh, of course, killed more than a dozen Russian soldiers, uh, downed helicopters, forced them to dig up roads to stop his pursuit. Again, if you're to believe this, this is Prigozhin essentially saying that this is all for altruistic goals for the betterment of oh, Russia. he's such a good person. <laughs> Prigozhin, <laughs> the 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 murder, uh, you know, human rights violator who's wanted in many countries for his mercenary group that commits torture, rape, and terrible things, was just there for the betterment of Russia. Why can't Putin and everyone understand that? Now, what's unclear here after the statement, Jill, is what his next move is. He is now allegedly in Belarus, which is essentially under the control of Russia. He's with some of his Wagner mercenary group allies. It's unclear how many others uh, in that group will take up Putin's offer to join the Russian military or join their old boss in Belarus. Prigozhin, until recently, had a lot of power, had a lot of influence, 
and by the way, is worth billions of dollars with this mercenary group. Uh, Russian police apparently over the weekend searching his offices in St. Petersburg, where he's originally from, found several trucks full of $48 million in cash. So it's unclear what assets he has left here uh, as the Russians crack down on the Wagner group. So that's Pergozin for now. By the way, we still haven't seen him on camera as of late Monday night. Back to Putin. He gave that short address that you discussed. Uh, it was built up by Russian authorities saying this is going to change the game here in Russia. And everyone's like, that's it. Five minutes, pre-tape, pretty straightforward. Notably, what he didn't mention in the speech that is getting attention, Pergozin's name, uh, people are speculating that it just means that Putin is so upset, so pissed at Pergozin. He won't even utter his name. He's just referring to his enemy here. But the larger issue for Putin is how is he going to save face here? I mean, this was incredibly embarrassing uh, for him on a number of fronts. Jill, I got a chance to watch an interview with former U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. She was also former National Security Advisor. By the way, she has studied Russia, learned Russian, spent time in Russia, dealt with people like Putin for the better part of 50 years, including her time in the Bush administration. She was over on Fox News on Monday. Uh, breaking things down. And I thought her answer to the question that some of you have had, that some of you have messaged us about, whether this is all an insider plot by Putin and concocted for him to consolidate power, she was asked that question on Fox by former Bush press secretary Dana Perino. Uh, here's the question and her answer. A few people suggested maybe this was all a ruse, that maybe Putin planned all of this. What do you think of that? Well, I, I think it probably gives them too much credit. I, I, at one point, I thought, could this be staged? But you wouldn't stage something, I think, that makes you look so weak. So weak. Uh, because really, dictators, uh, authoritarians, rest on three uh, principles. One is there has to be fear in the population. Secondly, you have to look invincible. Third, there can be no alternatives. Well, this has exploded all of those mm -hmm. for Putin. It also has exploded his myth that the Ukrainian special military operation could take place without any effect of, on Russia, without any effect on the Russian population, and that it was a just and necessary war. Probably the most damaging thing about this is that Prokhorzhin said what has been unspoken by those who have supported the war, that this is actually a war that did not have to take place where hundreds of thousands of Russians did not have to die, where a million people didn't have to flee the country. Uh, that, to me, is the most damaging thing that Prigozhin has done. Jill, I thought she put it in a very concise way, uh, that rule of three for dictators. Their power relies on creating fear, looking invincible, and asserting to everyone that there are no alternatives to their rule. And essentially what happened over those 36 hours of the weekend was that popped all three of those dictator rules. Pergozin, also the most high-profile person here to call out the war. The war, by the way, that was never a war. It was a special operation. And Pergozin basically was like, I'm going to call this whole thing out, again, for altruistic means here to, to better support Russia. But you can imagine uh, Putin here and the people around him figuring out, like, how do we calm things down and reassert to the Russian people that we're the ones in charge here? I've been kind of glued to the TV and, and podcasts and just trying to get as much analysis as possible. And to Condoleezza Rice's point, Putin looks so bad here that there's no way that he would have orchestrated this. Uh, one analyst said, you know, it's like the emperor has no clothes. You know, that's that's basically what it showed. And in terms of your question about how Putin saves face, a bunch of analysts said you know, Prigozhin is basically going to spend the rest of his life looking over his shoulder. 
because Putin does not usually let things like this go. No, the people who trust Putin tend to have the following fates. Jill, they eat some poison food or they fall out of a window. Many people falling out of windows uh, who have crossed him. So if I'm Prigozhin, uh, you know, clearly Prigozhin here, even in a statement on Monday, still sounding very confident, sounding like, all right, let's, you know, let's continue to operate here. Uh, and Putin sounding like, no, it's over for Wagner Group. By the way, one of the issues Wagner Group had, Jill, and we mentioned this on the podcast yesterday, is that Putin has been funding other mercenary groups, including the main uh, Russian oil company also has their own mercenary groups. One of the goals here by the Russians, by the way, was to have this mercenary group uh, do their business on behalf of Russia globally in places like Syria and Africa, and people not be able to point fingers at war crimes committed by the Russians. The Russians are like, well, that wasn't us. That was some mercenary group. So it's clear here that Putin is looking beyond uh, Prigozhin. The question is, is how long does Prigozhin get to hang out in Belarus and put out audio statements on Telegram? And to your point, uh, one analyst was saying, if I was Prigozhin, I would not go on any top floors and go near any windows for quite a while. I would stop eating. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting. Pergozin, former hot dog seller, right, made his own mustard, allegedly, when he was that hot dog seller, and he was a caterer. So I would definitely find a real loyalist to prepare my food as a former caterer uh, who does not want to be poisoned um, anytime in the near future. I mean, Putin works slow here. Sometimes people who cross him uh, will live on for years before suddenly... Uh, you know, befalling some sort of surprising fate here. So as we've been discussing, this does not appear to be the end of it. Uh, we heard a lot from the White House and the Pentagon on Monday uh, talking about their observations here. Uh, notably, one reporter, Jill, asked uh, the White House, uh, what are you guys even calling this? Rebellion? Mutiny? Like, how are we supposed to refer to this? And the White House replied, we're not putting a bumper sticker on this. And that was their reply. Uh, as for Biden, he made a point, he addressed it very briefly on camera on Monday, we posted this on the Instagram account, and said multiple times, we were not involved, we were not involved, we were not involved. Uh, he wanted to make sure that Putin can't blame any outsiders for the trouble in his own country. And meanwhile, in Ukraine, the Ukrainian military on Monday claimed further progress in its counteroffensive to drive out occupying Russian forces. Ukraine said that it took control of Rivnopol, the ninth village that it has recaptured this month. Ukrainian forces claim to have regained roughly 50 square miles in the country's south since the start of the campaign a couple of weeks ago. For perspective, that is just smaller than Washington, D.C., though Russia still occupies about 20 percent of the country, an area the size of Maryland. Trying to give you some geographic perspective there. All right. Switching gears. We've talked about drug shortages on this podcast before, but now those shortages are hitting life-saving cancer drugs. It is such a big problem that doctors have actually been forced to change the traditional courses of cancer treatment and decide which patients will get much-needed medication. There are at least 11 oncology medications currently in short supply. That is according to an ABC News analysis of data from the FDA. Among them, a drug to treat ovarian and head and neck cancer, another which treats a form of leukemia, and another that's used to treat skin cancer. One of the nation's top cancer care groups, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, is now advising doctors with low quantities of the medications to administer them to patients with a shot at being saved 
and to deny them to patients with recurrent or widely spread disease. Some doctors are administering the drugs at longer intervals in between and also skimming milliliters to stretch doses as long as possible. Others say they're turning to a strategy of surgery first and chemo later, banking on a resumption of supplies down the line. Now, one doctor with Ohio State's Cancer Center told ABC News, quote, the past six months have been the most challenging in my career for managing drug shortages in the cancer population. As you can imagine, it is extremely frustrating to know that you have a medication that can potentially cure a patient of cancer or extend their life and to know that you may not have enough to treat that patient. Yeah, it's incredibly concerning, Jill. I heard from a a number of folks whose families and friends are being impacted by this. The two main chemotherapy drugs, cisplatin and carboplatin, are deployed as frontline medicines and cocktails used to shrink or eliminate tumors. More than a dozen cancer drugs are also officially in short supply, as well as hundreds of other medications, including antibiotics and sterile injectable fluids. The lack of those two main chemotherapy drugs, though, is the most damaging for patients with ovarian, testicular, breast, lung, head, and neck cancers. So as far as what's behind the shortage here, the most recent shortages of the drugs occurred when a leading manufacturer, Intas Pharmaceuticals, was shut down back in December after the FDA performed a surprise inspection at its plant in India. The FDA found quality control records were destroyed and a cascade of failures at that site. The company's subsidiary, Accord Healthcare down in North Carolina, said recently that it was still making improvements at that plant in India where they need to restart production. Now, as far as some temporary relief here, there has been an easing of restrictions on imported drugs from China this past month, and that has provided a bit of relief. But doctors say the influx has not made that much of a dent, and some people are concerned about the type of medication coming from China, the standards being used over there. So right now, as far as we know, and we'll keep you all updated on this, the companies that sell the medications are projecting that this shortage could last at least through the fall, if not into 2024. So that's one aspect of the problem. The other long-term reason behind the shortage here includes the low profit margins for generic versions of these cancer drugs. Uh, And so that disincentivizes companies to be manufacturing them. And then on top of that, you have some labor and supply chain issues here. So to wrap this all up here, you had the shutdown of that plant in India. You have a lot of companies that are not producing generic cancer drugs anymore. Then you have supply chain issues uh, in general here. You have a loosening of standards uh, to let in some drugs from China. But nevertheless, you know, we have this uh, issue happening here. And Jill, it really struck us when we saw that recommendation from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, literally advising doctors on how to deal with multiple patients and not enough drugs and deciding who to treat. It sort of reminded me of the situation uh, with COVID early on, remember with the, the ventilators, et cetera, when the feeling in the hospitals was we, we can't treat all these people. And they were advising people like, well, then go with the people who you think might most survive here. And it's just so unfortunate because we report on this podcast about how much progress has been made in the fight against cancer and how many more people are surviving Uh, And people are able to fight it now with the correct drugs. And it's just, we don't have enough of the drugs. I was going to make that exact point in terms of the medical advances that we've seen and the fact that it's just not enough supply of these drugs um, is so incredibly frustrating. It feels like it's one of the situations where the government does need to, you know, institute the Defense Production Act or something 
and get involved here because, you know, literally it's it's a national security issue, right? You know, not being able to treat Americans from things that could kill tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Americans and are treatable. Uh, it's been discussed at the White House. I imagine you're going to be hearing more about this as this crisis uh, escalates here. Especially for life-saving drugs. My husband recently needed an antibiotic and he had to go to, I think it was four or five different pharmacies in order to get it. And he came back the first night and he didn't have it. And I was like, oh my God, are you going to be okay? And he said, no, it's fine. You know, I, it's kind of just like a precautionary thing that I need it. But I couldn't even imagine if this was a, a cancer drug or something that was, was desperately needed to save somebody's life. All right, time now for the speed read from USA Today. The heat dome that has been cooking Texas set to move north in the coming days. Forecasters expect the intense heat that has brought record-breaking triple-digit temps to Texas will continue for much of this week and then expand into the plains and to the southeast. More temperature records could topple, leading to dangerous heat index values. In all, as of Monday, more than 45 million Americans live where some level of heat alert is in effect, according to the National Weather Service. Tens of millions of Americans across the South and Central United States Many of them in Texas have endured a brutal heat wave over the past couple of weeks, with temperatures soaring to record levels, including some above 110 degrees. Yeah, it is vicious out there. My parents are in Fort Worth and now Jill and have basically just been living, thankfully, in the air conditioning indoors, uh, waiting for this heat dome to go away. And unfortunately, it does not look based on this forecast that it's going away anytime soon. And as you mentioned, it's expanding. So watch out Louisiana, Alabama. Arkansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, Kansas, and a bit of Nebraska, you will all be seeing it, uh, especially later in the week when you head into Thursday into Friday. When it comes to what a heat dome is here, it's basically a persistent region of high pressure that traps heat over an area. Uh, Apparently, this was rare, and some climatologists say this is more common now with climate change. And what happens in a heat dome is that it essentially prevents clouds from forming, which only makes the issue worse. And so you have the heat here, but you also have extreme humidity, which is what leads to these extreme heat index values, Jill, where it's not just 107 degrees with humidity at a certain value, you you know, the feels like becomes 120 or 125 or God forbid, 130. And you're seeing this in portions of the country. In fact, if you look at the forecast globally right now, Jill, right now there's Texas and the Sahara Desert in Africa in terms of the hottest places on earth. And so with all that in mind, the National Weather Service is advising people, particularly those uh, who have to work or participate in outdoor activities, to be very cautious, limit them to the extent they can, because, you know, at these temperatures, things can go badly very quickly. Mosh, I'm still stuck on that visual of the Sahara Desert and Texas as being the, the hottest places on Earth right now. Jill, according to the forecasters, Texas is hotter than 99% of the planet right now. And so you have basically, and I can share this link in the show notes, it's Texas, it's the Sahara, and it's part of the desert in Saudi Arabia are basically the hottest points on earth over the next couple of days. From CNBC, President Biden kicked off a $42 billion plan to give every American household access to high-speed internet by the end of the decade. The funds have already been allotted by Congress through last year's infrastructure bill, and now they're slated to be divvied up over the next two years. 
Each state will receive a minimum of $107 million, with 19 states receiving over a billion dollars. Texas and California, the two most populous U.S. states, top the funding list at $3.1 billion and $1.9 billion, respectively. Other less populous states like Virginia, Alabama, and Louisiana cracked the top 10 list for funding because of the lack of broadband access. These states have large rural areas with less internet connectivity than their major cities. White House officials compared the plan to President FDR's effort to bring electricity to rural America in the 1930s. Yeah, they say at this point, internet is a necessity on par with water and power and is important for all Americans to have high-speed internet. Right now, Jill, it's estimated that 7% of the country or about 8.5 million homes and businesses are considered underserved with internet speed below the government standards. That's 25 megabits per second for downloads or three megabytes for uploads for those of you in cities or suburbs. That's internet speed that you haven't seen since the mid-90s that many Americans still have to deal with in rural areas. This whole issue was really reinforced during COVID, you know, when a lot of kids were home and had to do school from home. And that digital divide became very apparent uh, in terms of the number of places where there is no high-speed internet. Jill, I know I've mentioned Texas a lot in this podcast, but as my parents were moving down there, we were looking at homes about an hour outside Dallas. And it was remarkable to see, you know, in the year 2022, 2023, that there is still no high-speed internet, even when you're an hour from certain American cities. It's something we certainly take for granted in many places and cities and suburbs. And there are many Americans still dealing with this. So this priority right now is to get this all done, to get high-speed internet in every home, in the next six years. When you were off a couple of weeks ago, um, we had Weijia Zhang from CBS on the podcast, and she was doing a big story on this. She was saying her parents who live in West Virginia, they still don't have high-speed internet. And she interviewed as part of her story, somebody who actually had to change their career. Um, That's because they're a photographer and they just weren't able to download images and send the images that they were taking quickly enough. I mean, we've been talking about this, you know, also when we talked about recently the, the end of AM radio in certain cars, you know, that people are like, well, people have the internet now, you know, et cetera, and smartphones, but there is a good percentage of this country that does not. I mean, when we're talking about seven or 8% of the country, Jill, we're talking about 20 million plus Americans who don't have high-speed internet. And so this is a priority here, and, you know, hopefully this, this funding will, will get it done. Okay, from the Associated Press, a story now that's getting a lot of attention, particularly across Asia. The Japanese government is planning to release 1.3 million tons of radioactive water from the defunct Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. The release could begin as early as this summer. It has stirred broad opposition from Japan's fishing industry and consumers, some marine scientists, as well as neighboring countries like South Korea and China. The plan was first announced in April of 2021, and it's to gradually release the treated but still slightly radioactive water following its dilution to what it says are safe levels. Japanese officials say the water currently stored in about a thousand tanks at the plant needs to be removed to prevent accidental leaks in case of an earthquake and to make room for the plant's decommissioning. They say that the radioactive water will be released gradually into the ocean over decades through an undersea tunnel that releases it 0.6 miles from the coast, making it harmless to people and marine life. So that's what they're saying, that that half mile undersea tunnel uh, will make it harmless to everybody. 
By the way, they have gotten approval, trying to reassure folks, from the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, uh, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, which owns the Fukushima Station, says there will be no consequences as the water will meet all international standards for discharge, and the discharge into the sea will only start when all stakeholders have signed off. Again, they were hoping to do that this year because these water uh, tanks, these thousand water tanks, are getting full and they're set to reach their capacity next year, and they're trying to figure out what to do with the water. A reminder here, uh, about 12 years ago in March of 2011, that's when there was a massive earthquake and tsunami that destroyed the Fukushima nuclear plant, causing three reactors to melt uh, and their cooling water to be contaminated and leak continuously. And so this is a multi-year, multi-decade effort to deal with the fallout from uh, the 2011 earthquake. As you mentioned, there's a lot of protests here, in particularly the local fishing communities in Japan uh, and across Asia. You know, a Japanese fishing, a huge industry. Uh, they have a very loud, influential voice in the country, and they're very concerned about their ability to sell their fish, uh, both domestically and abroad, should this happen. Already, by the way, Jill, we're seeing a consumer boycott in China over Japanese cosmetic makers. Apparently, a viral campaign uh, has gone through social media on China where people are like, oh, I think that their makeup now in Japan is radioactive from this. Now, that's largely unsubstantiated as a social media rumor, but just the rumor is already causing damage uh, and stocks to go down and some sales to go down for Japanese companies. So they're extremely concerned when this actually becomes a reality here and stuff is going into the ocean. Again, the Japanese here say they're backed up at the AEA. The science is on their side. You know, that uh, people uh, have nothing to fear. At the same time, there are other scientists who say that the impact of long-term low-dose exposure to radionuclides is unknown, and the release here should be delayed until we know more. You heard it here first, radionuclides, Moshe's <laughs> next area of expertise. I'm going to have to dig into it, Jill. <laughs> you know, you, you last week it was submersibles, this weekend uh, Russian insurrections, and coming up soon how to dilute radioactive water to ensure it is safe for all of us and the animals. On a serious note, what has struck me in this story is just that there are really no good options. You know, Jill, when it comes to nuclear uh, power plants and uh, long-term waste, obviously, you know, they're carbon-free, but dealing with their waste uh, in a variety of ways has been an issue around the world, including here in the U.S., where there's been a whole debate about where to bury uh, radioactive waste uh, out in Nevada, that's been going on for decades. And so where do you stick this stuff? In this case, they have a thousand tanks full of radioactive water. And they're like, the tanks are filling up and we could have an earthquake at any time in Japan. Uh, and so we need a place to put this water. So where does it go on planet Earth? From Axios, it appears that hallucinogens are starting to take the path of marijuana in this country. By that, we mean that for the first time on Monday, the FDA released guidance related to trial conduct and safety for researchers looking into psychedelic treatments for a variety of conditions, including PTSD, depression, and anxiety. Psychedelics have shown promise for treating a range of addictions and mental health disorders. With the guidance, the FDA hopes to, quote, help researchers design studies that will yield interpretable results that will be capable of supporting future drug applications. Yeah, so this is the path here when you're talking about kind of taking the path of marijuana, legitimizing this uh, for science, for medication, 
and then potentially for just overall legal use, though we're years away from that. The FDA guidance here, Jill, covers studies on classic psychedelics like psilocybin, which you know you might know as magic mushrooms, LSD, and MDMA. Looking nationally here, already 25 states have considered legislation allowing some form of psychedelic legalization, with Oregon and Colorado having actually already decriminalized the supervised use of psychedelics. In an analysis a couple months ago in JAMA Psychiatry, the journal estimated that most states will legalize psychedelics by 2037, so in the next 15 years. We should remind all of you at home, just as we talk about this, that LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, shrooms, all are federally illegal, but the FDA here has released the guidance. And so if some of these studies show promise and the FDA needs to approve a psychedelic product, they would then need to make a recommendation to legalize the drug for medical use nationally. Again, that could be years away here, but it appears we're on this pathway. We have reported on this podcast before, Jill, about some studies showing a lot of promise when it comes to PTSD, when it comes to depression, when it comes to anxiety uh, with these drugs uh, given in a very specific form, supervised, et cetera. And so it'll be very interesting to see how this evolves uh, in the coming years, especially having just watched what happened with marijuana over the past two decades. All right, and from science to not science, from the Today Show. Pseudoscience? (laughs) (laughs) We often hear about mercury in retrograde. Well, mercury retrograde famously is something that we blame for mix-ups. It allegedly impacts all forms of communication, as mercury is the planet said to rule communication. During these periods, we often experience delays, mix-ups, and accidents when it comes to communication, transportation, and technology. Well, according to the astronomers and astrologers that we follow here at Mo News, we will have a rare situation in the coming weeks. This is according to NBC. Seven planets will be in retrograde at some point this summer. From May through December, the following planets will be in retrograde, sometimes overlapping. Pluto, Saturn, Neptune, Venus, Uranus, as most would say, Jupiter, and of course, famously, Mercury. So, Mosh, what does this all mean? Okay, so two explanations, as I promised. First, the scientists. Retrogrades occur when a planet appears to move backwards in its orbit when planets are at the closest point in orbit to the Earth. So that is the scientific explanation for what retrograde is. It's, again, an appearance of looking like it's moving backwards. Typically, no more than a few planets are in retrograde at any given time. And now it sounds rare, and it is. This year, we sort of have a perfect storm on our hands, but it's not unheard of. It has happened in the past. And despite merely being optical illusions, this is thought, now we're moving from science to pseudoscience here, Jill, this is thought to have an astrological effect, retrograde. And depending on your zodiac here, these retrogrades could have different effects. And so for Aries, according to todayshow.com, this is now the time to budget, to keep your receipts if you decide to change your mind. Cancers, your communication may be hindered, so take more care in your choice of words. Leos, this is the perfect time to extend a helping hand to a friend to check in, offer compassion. Libras, set boundaries. Anyway, they go through all of this. We'll include the link in the show notes. Jill, I made a point again uh, to check our impact out as Geminis. According to the story, We need to use our charisma as Geminis to elegantly move past old situations that we want no part of. And if people project negativity on us, we must ignore them and focus on ourselves. You got that? 
I ood charisma, Moshe, so you got it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let the haters get to you, essentially, if you're a Gemini anytime in the next six months. And for everybody who is listening to this story, rolling their eyes and thinking, what podcast am I listening to? Is this still the Mo News daily news podcast? (laughs) Yes, it is. Um, And it is a question that we actually posed on our Instagram account to everybody who follows. And what were the results there? Yeah, so I posted the Today Show story because I was just like, you know, a lot of negative news out there. Let's just, you know, throw out this fun story. And, you know, of course, I got people being like, yay, you fi- I finally feel seen. And then you had people who were like, what are you, this is not news. How could you do this? And I was like, you keep clicking, you people. So anyway, we did a poll, about 9,000 votes in jail. We're only a few hours into this poll. I said, here are your options uh, on horoscopes. A, I love a horoscope. B, I buy into parts of a horoscope and the Zodiac. C, nonsense. Right now, nonsense is winning at 52%. But if you add up people who love a horoscope or people who partially buy into a horoscope, that is 48% of the Monus community, Jill. So we're essentially at 50-50 right now with a couple hours of this poll with people who say nonsense. And by the way, I should note, several people who wrote nonsense then messaged me saying, I wrote nonsense in the poll, but that doesn't mean I'm not interested in the nonsense. I enjoy the nonsense. So I think fair based on my scientific standards here since or pseudoscientific standards, given that the general topic of the story, the majority of the news community either believes in this stuff or doesn't mind it, Jill. As a fellow Gemini, my split personality agrees. All right, now time for On This Day in History. We are going to begin in 1844, nearly 200 years ago. The founder of the Mormons and the Church of the Latter-day Saints, Joseph Smith, was killed by a mob on this day. You might know a bit of the history here. Smith claimed in 1823 that he had been visited by a Christian angel who spoke to him about a holy text. During the next several years, Smith dictated an English translation of that text. In the year 1830, the Book of Mormon was then published. He would go on to attract thousands to the faith, uh, eventually uh, moved to Illinois, and that's when 14 years later, he was killed along with his brother. There had been some dissenters uh, to his leadership. In fact, Smith was trying to run for president at the time. Either way, the divide within the church had gotten pretty violent, uh, and he would meet his end uh, on this day in 1844. All right, fast forward here to the 20th century. On this day in history, you might not know the name Lena Springs. But on this day, 99 years ago, Jill, she was the first woman ever to have her name placed into nomination to be vice president of the United States. Tell me everything. (laughs) Well, actually, there's not that much on her. And I really want to dig more on Lena Springs. I didn't know much about her uh, until I was digging into the uh, history of today. She apparently had shared the credentials committee of the 1924 Democratic National Convention. And as an honorary thing, they put her in contention to be VP. Now, it wasn't done as a serious thing, but their intent here was to show her some respect. Uh, Incidentally, that convention, Jill, was a complete debacle. It would go through more than 100 votes to get a nominee. You might not know this guy's name. His name is John Davis. He would eventually be the 1924 Democratic presidential nominee. Uh, He would go on to lose to Calvin Coolidge. Uh, but interestingly, uh, I'd love to learn more about Lena Springs, if anyone in the audience knows, and and dig in here. Because remember, this was only just a few years after women had gained the right to vote. And you already had here, uh, you know, this is a good trivia fact, uh, the first woman nominated to be VP. 
All right, a bit more trivia here from the 1920s. On this day in 1927, the U.S. Marines adopted the Bulldog as their mascot. Apparently, it came from uh, their reputation from World War One. some fighting they had done in a, a battle of Bellow Wood. It earned them the nickname the Devil Dogs. And so they would come out of the war, uh, and essentially the Bulldog was seen as a way uh, to help with recruitment, Jill. There's a brigadier general named Smedley Butler. Love the name Smedley. He oversaw Quantico at the time, uh, knew that they could uh, increase recruitment through sports, and they needed a mascot. And so that mascot would become the Bulldog. And I end here with some pop culture history. As we mentioned, Jill, the summer of 98, a classic summer 25 years ago. And so today I decided to look back at the Billboard charts from this week in 1998. And so here's the top three. From late June 1998. Let's start with number three on the list. Next, Too Close. Next up, Jill, number two on the list this week in 1998. You're Still the One by Shania Twain. She recently, Mosh, performed... That very song with Harry Styles while on his most recent tour. Shania Twain still going strong after all these years. A lot of uh, incredible hits there from the 90s. And then number one, this song dominated the charts all summer. Brandy and Monica, The Boy Is Mine. Brandy, of course, became a TV star uh, on Moesha. Yeah, I couldn't go far in the late 90s, Jill, without people looking at my name and being like, Moesha? no just one letter reversed everybody but that was sort of the late 90s for you uh trying to explain my name to people so mosh like moesha right i'm like exactly well mosh moesha thank you for that walk down memory lane it was uh it was wonderful we'll try to do that once in a while it's cool if you actually go to billboard.com you can search your birth date or an important date in history or just this week, uh, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, and see what songs uh, were the most popular. It's a fun pastime. I don't know how many of you do it, but I do it once in a while, Joel. Most whatever gets you through the For night. For professional reasons, clearly. I got I to gotta fill out this segment every day. All right. A big thank you to everybody for listening to the EMO News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Those reviews matter. If you don't follow the show already, please follow us and leave us a review uh, on Apple and Spotify especially. It really helps us uh, continue to grow uh, up the charts and grow what we're doing here on the podcast. All right. Bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.